0: You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland.
1: True faith can only be shown by works. We show our faith, which is invisible, by our works, which are visible. Conversely, faith which has no works, we can't even see if it's there, so the only way we would have to evaluate it is the work. Of course, behind this is the assumption that everyone knows faith, though it is real, is a metaphysical reality. You can't scientifically investigate whether somebody has faith or not. Can't put it in a test tube, can't try to figure it out that way. What is the way we would figure out they have faith? answer, again, is their works, their works that flow from faith.
0: Faith and works, are they important? Can you have one without the other? In the book of James chapter 2, verse 14, we read, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In today's message, Pastor Tom reminds you of the importance of both faith and works. Works without faith is dead, but faith without works is also dead. True faith is an active and living faith. True faith lives as Christ lived, loving and giving and teaching. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James, chapter 2, as he continues his message, Is Your Faith Dead or Living?
1: That would be tragic to go through life and have the gospel preached to you, and you heard it, you understood it, you're educated, but you didn't believe it. You didn't embrace it for yourself. You didn't take it in. It didn't benefit you. That's what happened to that generation. Saw those miracles came out with Moses. It didn't profit them because they didn't believe. So this is a profitless kind of faith, a dead faith, that doesn't profit in salvation. It also doesn't do anything for the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't bear any fruit for the kingdom of Christ. It can't. It doesn't win any souls to Christ. It can't. It doesn't care for the brethren. It doesn't. On the other hand, we read in Matthew 13, 23, the parable of the soils. It shows what happens when the truth is sprinkled out like seed on grounds, on soils. Remember that parable? And some finally lands on some good soil. And I like when my seed lands on good soil because then good stuff happens and good stuff grows from that. And that's what you want as a farmer or even as a novice kind of a you know, gardener as I am, you want that. And Jesus just says the obvious, it fell on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, and then in between the line, believes it in such a way who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Some are very zealous for God in their faith. Others are pretty zealous for God. Some have some fruit, but they're all bearing fruit. They're alive. That's good. That's useful. That's real faith. That faith's not like that. It's the opposite. A dead faith also is of no use to the poor. We just saw that, right? Guy's hungry, comes up to the door, knock, knock, knock. I'm hungry. Go at peace. Be filled. What's he going to do? Eat the air? Is he going to eat your words? What is he going to do? Give him something. Look at his clothes. It's tattered. It's almost like he's naked there. It shelters no one, clothes no one, feeds no one, meets no needs. I want to just ask you as a side note, as a believer, those of you who know you are believers out there, doesn't it bring you great joy when you meet someone's need? Doesn't it just, isn't it true that Jesus said it's more blessed to what? Give than to what? Receive. I used to think that was a verse that was just sort of a pious kind of thing. It wasn't true. Because I really liked receiving. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I was like, what is Jesus saying about it's more? And then as my heart was warmed more and more in salvation, I was like, actually, it is more blessed to give to someone and see their joy than it is to get something yourself. That comes, I guess, with maturity. But for a while, I was saying, no, I think it's, it's more fun to get category. And then you have to grow and realize, no, it's, it's more joyful to give. A dead faith doesn't glorify God at all. Christ's name is supposed to be lifted up. How can his name be lifted up from those who carry the name Christian don't love, right? God's will is left undone. God's mercy is not shown. Down below, we're going to see Rahab receiving the spies by faith. We're going to talk long, this will be next time, about Abraham offering up his son by faith. Man, that's a powerful story in the Bible, isn't it? If we turn to Hebrews 11, we'd keep cranking out people who did things by faith. There would be Noah. What did he do by faith? Oh, just preserve the entire human race on a boat while everyone else was mocking him. Moses, what did he do? He gave up all the riches of the palace in Egypt, probably the richest kingdom in the world at that time. He turned his back on all the riches and he said, I would rather have reproach with the people of God, than to have these passing pleasures of sin with the Egyptians. He gave it all up, went out and wandered in in the wilderness. I bet there's sometimes he was out there with all those complaining Jews and he wondered whether or not he made the right choice or not. But in the long run, he he understood that he did. And then there was the walls of Jericho. They came down by what, a trumpet blast? No, it was God really just using all that really crazy things, walking around a wall, shouting, it falls down. What was God trying to show? That he's going to do it and not us. And he did it by faith. Faith is supposed to bring profit to other people. Your faith, let me just stop and make this personal to you. Your faith has been put in you by God so that you will be a blessing to other people, to the church, to unsaved people, to anybody. That's why you have that faith to profit other people, to bring glory to God. That's why it's in you. It's not just like, well, I got my faith. I like my faith. My faith is my faith, my precious little faith. No, it's given to you to do something for other people. Faith is supposed to be beneficial. Dead faith just lays there. It's like a sick, lazy dog, you know? You, you say, get up, it doesn't do anything, you know? You slap it, it does nothing. You kick the thing, it goes nowhere. It's just like a dead dog. That's what some people's faith is like. No, you shouldn't kick dogs, by the way. Just an illustration. Now I would say to the leaders among us that sometimes we feel like we're kicking dead dogs with people, right? It's like, I tell them... I counsel them, I show them, I underline the verse for them. This don't do anything. Sometimes we have to look backwards and wonder, do they have a dead faith or do they have a living faith? And we have to work backwards with that. The sixth description is that dead faith is, well, it's dead. That's the sixth one. It's dead. It's lifeless. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Normal word for dead, being by itself. It's useless, yes, but it's also dead dead is the least flattering objective adjective you could give to anybody right I mean death is not what we look forward to we love life we appreciate life by the way we Christians are optimistic because we have a resurrection what is that it's being raised what out of the dead and how do we know that because Jesus went down into death came back out right That's why any idea that Jesus was raised spiritually but not bodily just ruins the whole Christian message. No, he went down, he bodily died, bodily buried, bodily rose. Otherwise, we don't have a message for the world. We're just contemplators and mystics without that. This is real history. This happened. No one could disprove the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence for it is overwhelming. There are eyewitnesses, hundreds of them. He rose from the dead. So this is important to us. We we don't want to be dead. We realize we have to die, but we want to be alive. We look forward to that. That's our hope. Resurrection. What does dead indicate? A complete lack of activity. There's nothing vital about deadness, right? Grace Seminary Journal in uh, spring 1991 had an article called "The Soteriology of James 2:14." Pricked my attention, so I got this quote from it: When he James explains that faith without works is dead, he is not saying that it has become weak and died. He is describing it as a faith that never was. It's non-existent in the eyes of James, and ultimately in the eyes of God. So what James says, remember, he's the human author. God is inspiring his word through the human author, choosing James's vocabulary, but this is God's word. This is dead faith. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. See, when someone comes to faith, you see something change in them. Their countenance changes. Their eyes get a little brighter. Their, their attitude changes. You can tell that sometimes, can't you? You've been working with someone, all of a sudden, Something happened to them. They changed. They're different now. What's different? They have the life of God in them. Some people have religion, but they don't have the life of God in their soul. They have physical life, I mean, they're walking around, they're doing what they're supposed to do in life, but they don't have God's eternal life in their soul. And when that happens, things change, and you can see that. And those of you that are spiritual understand that. You perceive that in them. They've now become alive in their soul. That's why Jesus said, you have to be born again. What was wrong with my first birth? Your first birth produced a body with a dead soul. You need the new birth so you can have the new life, which is eternal, that prepares for the kingdom to come. It's the kind that connects you truly with God. So you have to have that life. But this is a profession of faith which never yielded the life. That's what's so dangerous about it. You can hover around Christians, be in church, read things, and not have the life in you. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. If you're coming to the conclusion now that you have a dead kind of faith... That's good. That means that you're not being deceived. That means you're being awakened and God is beginning to work in your life and you can come and say, Lord, I have been too proud. I've been, I don't know what I've been missing, but I need need to call on you. Please do that supernatural work inside of me. Grant me that life because your soul's not quickened yet. By the way, when you read John's gospel and he says, in order to get eternal life, you need to believe, and then you turn to to Paul's epistles and you read that you're saved by faith alone. You hear the word faith and you hear the word believe and you go to Peter and you go to these other places and you're reading about that. That kind of faith is the living faith. It's a faith that does more than sit there and agree with some facts. It's a a kind of faith that thrusts oneself on the mercy of God and trusts one whole self to God. It's not just in the head, it's the whole person that says, I need you, God, and here I am, and I put my trust before you. That is a living, vital kind of faith that brings eternal life. We don't want a barren acceptance of facts. We want a hearty trust in the person of Christ. Believing brings change, because believing brings life, and life lives vibrantly through and demonstrated through holy love. But if there's no holy love then there's no life. And if there's no life, then there's no faith. There's no believing. True faith latches onto Christ and says, teach me, I want to follow. That's what a disciple is. That's what happened in the book of Acts. When you read about the early Christians, what was happening, I mean, this was a crazy time with the spread of the gospel everywhere in the early chapters of Acts. And you see God just kind of moving them forward and these explosions of believers all around the Roman world. It says in Acts 6, 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. We forget that there were Christians all over the city of Jerusalem one time. Filled it. And then it says a great many of the priests, that is the Jewish priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. You see, faith has an obedience that comes along with it. That was real faith. Spurgeon has a quote. The quotable Spurgeon, here we go. It's a little long. A tree has been planted out into the ground, he writes. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it hath apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say, it is dead. And you are correct. It is dead. And it is not that the leaves could have made it alive, but that the absence of leaves is that it is dead. So too is it with the professor, the person who says he's a Christian. If he hath life, that life must give fruits. If his faith has a root, but if there be no works, then depend upon it that the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. If you got lost in there, what it means is, The root has to be good in order for the fruit to show. If he's really a believer and it's sunk into the gospel of God, then you'll see that in the leaf and in the fruit. Of course, Jesus told his disciples, which was a warning after uh, Judas had just departed. He was working out the betrayal of Christ, and these words come right in that context where he said, if anyone does not remain in me, and that's a perfect example of Judas, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away As a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Brothers and sisters, that's not a description of God spanking a true child of God. That is eternal fire. John the Baptist warned the religious leaders the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. R.C. Sproul in the Ligonier Ministry writes about how this harmonizes with being saved by faith alone. Listen to this. You know R.C. you give a little bit of theological harmony here. He writes, our righteous status before God is not earned by the works of the law or by other such good deeds. And he quotes Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Rather, we are declared righteous by faith alone. And this faith must be a living faith that endeavors to live according to God's word in gratitude for salvation. If works are not present, our faith is dead, James 2.26. And a dead faith, because it is ineffectual, is really no faith at all. A dead faith is really no faith at all because a dead faith can in no way lay hold of the perfect righteousness of Christ. We must have a living faith evidenced by works of love and mercy toward other people." End quote. It's exactly what we've been teaching here. In the Dallas Seminary Journal, Bibsack, from 1954, a man named Roy Aldrich writes this. It is evident that there is faith and faith, and he puts that in capital letters. There is nominal faith and real faith. There is intellectual faith and heart faith. There is sensual faith and there is spiritual faith. There is dead faith and there is vital faith. There is traditional faith which may fall short of transforming personal faith. There is a faith that may be commended as orthodox and yet have no more saving value than the faith of demons. We're going to see we're going to get to that. What is saving faith? It must go beyond intellectual assent and include an act of the will, your will that is. It means trust and committal. It means resting and depending entirely on Christ for salvation end quote. So in other words, why am I saved? Is it 50% because of what I do and 50% of Christ? That's a false gospel. Would you agree? How about me? Do I get 30% and Christ does 70%? Oh, how humble I am. 25%? 10? Finally, we're bargaining with God. How about I know, I know, I've got to give 1% of my efforts and then God will take care of 99%. Is that the Christian gospel? No, it's not we don't add any of our righteousness or works to the mix at all. It's all the righteousness of Christ or there's no deal with God. All right, seventh, dead faith can't be demonstrated. Verse 18, dead faith can't be demonstrated. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Some scholars have called this verse one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to unravel. The overall intent of James Fortunately, it is fairly clear, but there's a huge problem in understanding exactly what James was doing with this quote. Translators disagree on it tremendously. Who is being quoted, first of all? Is it a friend of James, someone on his side, or an antagonist to James, someone debating with him? How far does the quote go? They're amazing how many different cutoff places the quote goes, because in the original Greek there are no punctuation marks like that. And what the position the debater has in relation to James is not clear either. The issues are many. They're tightly intertwined. There's no obvious solution, and I'm not going to bore you with a lot of the details. Frankly, it's confusing. I kind of, as I went through this, realized that everyone has to eat a little bit of interpretive humble pie here in, in dealing with this. So in a very undogmatic way, I'm going to say that I agree with the scholars who suggest that James is using an advocate of his position to boost his argument. Whether that's clear or not, fortunately, what is clear no matter how far the quote goes or who is saying it, is this, true faith can only be shown by works. We show our faith, which is invisible, by our works, which are visible. Conversely, faith which has no works, we can't even see if it's there, so the only way we would have to evaluate it is the work. Of course, behind this is the assumption that everyone knows faith, though it is real, is a metaphysical reality. You can't scientifically investigate whether somebody has faith or not. Can't put it in a test tube, can't try to figure it out that way. What is the way we would figure out they have faith? answer, again, is their works, the works that flow from faith. We cannot have confidence somebody is saved because they say They're a Christian. You know, it's debated in politics. You know, don't you believe so and so is a Christian or so and so is a Christian? If we mean in the nominal sense that they would check off and say they're a Christian, fine. But if we mean in the true sense, the only way to know that is to know the person well and to know their personal life well to be able to say whether they're a Christian or not. Just because someone claims to be a Christian, in fact, I usually tend to doubt the claims that are made in either in the political world or in the world of Hollywood or singers or whatever, someone says they're a Christian, I'm kind of like, uh-huh, you know, right, because being a Christian has been spread so thin, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that, I hope you don't either, you have to show it by works, Christ said all men will know you are my disciples if you claim to have faith in me, is that what he said, if you have what, love for one another, the only way anyone is going to know you're one of my disciples, you're a believer in me is let's see the love. The demonstration of your faith is not only important to other people, it's also important to you. Did you know that? Did you know that in your heart when you're wondering, am I saved? You're wondering and you're concerned with the assurance of salvation. You're going to increase your assurance that you are personally saved when you see in your own life that fruit of love coming out. If you look at yourself and you, you, you know the duties of the Christian life, you're coming to church, you're doing what you ought to do but you don't see a heart of affection toward other people and compassion toward other people with what they're going through. You don't want to help them in their need. You don't have mercy coming from, and that goes on for weeks and months. What's going to start to happen in your own heart is you're going to doubt that you're saved, and you ought to. See, the Bible has magnificent promises for believers. We could go through many of them, we don't have time. If you believe, you have eternal life. Many promises, that's on the page of Scripture, and you could say, I agree with that. Everyone who believes in Christ is forgiven of all their sins, and they have heaven that's coming, and they have a new birth, and they have a great relationship with God, and they're redeemed, and they're justified, and you go on and on with all of it. But the question still remains, am I one of the believers, right? Right? Now, to a certain degree, you have to know that because faith itself has a measure of confidence to it. When you go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So there's a measure of assurance and confidence in your faith itself that kind of leads you along to say, yes, I'm a believer. How do you know I'm a believer? Because I know I believe. But in the midst of all of that, there's some doubt that creeps in when you look at your life and say, well, wait a minute now, I'm not 100% sure that I believe. Did I? And so sometimes people look backwards and they say, oh yeah, I remember, I was at the Billy Graham crusade and I came forward and they prayed for me and I said a very nice prayer. Does that really give you assurance? Well, no, I was in a Pentecostal church and they they were really going and swaying back and forth and they called up front and I know the Spirit was working that day and then something happened to me and I know because of that experience I'm saved. Really? I don't mean to burst your bubble here today, people. Yeah, but Grandma so-and-so, when I was, you know, seven years old, pray with me. And I know that I've been saved since that prayer. Don't you dare insult Grandma so-and-so. Okay? Okay? I hope that's not where you gain your confidence that you're a believer. You say, well, where are you supposed to gain it? Well, 1 John 3, if you have love, you will assure your heart before God. Your heart will be assured. And whatever your heart condemns you, God knows all things and is greater than your heart. Look, if your own conscience is bearing testimony against you and your spirit that you are not a loving person, God who knows more certainly knows you're not that way also. How are you going to reassure your own conscience that you're born again and say, answer, love. Love is inseparable from faith. Love is that obedience to the commandment of Christ. When you love, you're obedient. When you're obedient to Christ, you assure your own heart you're genuinely saved. Don't go on feelings. Well, I had a feeling when I asked Christ in my heart or what someone said, because you've prayed this prayer and signed this little thing, keep this in your Bible all the time and you'll know that you're always saved. That only goes so far, people. Obedience to Christ's commands, especially the command to love because he emphasized it, is the personal evidence which proves to others, maybe more importantly to your own conscience, that you're saved. When you see God changing your desires, your affections inwardly, And the very way you think, the things you love change. It starts spilling out into fruit of love towards other people. That's undeniable. Dr. MacArthur has a book called Saved Without a Doubt. I actually recommended it to someone recently. And then I decided to pick it up and look at it. And he has an extended quote about Jonathan Edwards and the Great American Awakening. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit longer than I usually do, but I want to just read this to you. It's very fascinating. I think it'll be personally helpful to you. In 1646, he writes, about six years after the Great Awakening, in which Jonathan Edwards was the primary instrument of God to preach the gospel and bring about the greatest revival in American history thus far, Edwards wrote a treatise concerning the religious affections, love affections. He wrote it to deal with a problem not unlike one we face today, the matter of evidence for true conversion. Many people want the blessings of salvation, especially eternal security, but no more. In the explosive drama of the Great Awakening, it seemed as though conversions were occurring in great numbers. However, it didn't take long to realize that some people claimed conversions that were not real. While various excesses and heightened emotional experiences were common, scores of people didn't demonstrate any evidence in their lives to verify their claim to know and love Jesus Christ, which led critics to attack the Great Awakening, contending it was nothing but a big emotional bath without any true conversions. Thus, partly in defense of true conversion and partly to expose false conversion, Jonathan Edwards took up his pen. He came to this simple conclusion. The supreme proof of a true conversion is what he called holy affections, which is a zeal for holy things and a longing after God and personal holiness. He made a careful distinction between saving versus common operations of the Holy Spirit. Saving operations obviously produce salvation.
0: Pastor Tom encouraged you in today's message to have an active faith. You discovered that though your faith is invisible, it is by works that your faith becomes visible. And when your faith is visible, others will see Jesus in you. Today you learn the book of James teaches that when your faith is living and active, you help others grow in their faith. They will know who you put your faith in when they see it.
1: I am so glad you joined me today to dig deeper into God's Word. Before we share what's coming up next time, I'd like to give you the opportunity to join us in sharing the gospel message here at Discover Hope. Would you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this ministry? We're a listener-supported radio program, and all gifts are very appreciated. You can get all the information and donate online by visiting hopebible.org slash radio. That's
0: hopebible.org slash radio. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will teach on being obedient to Christ. You'll learn the best way to be obedient to Christ is to love as he loved. And the best way to love as Jesus loved is to live out an active faith. Your faith becomes alive and active when you truly put your hope in the Lord. And when your hope is in him, you can't help but spill out love to those around you. For when God is present, so is love. For God is love. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit hopebiblechurch.org and look under the sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word, so join us again right here on Discover Hope.